is from the first chapter of Luke, verses 46 through 55. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Matt Anderson. I'm the associate pastor here at Resurrection. And uh, first, I just have to say, after hearing Katie share what she shared, there's part of me that feels like everything that needs to be said has already been said this morning. I'm deeply grateful for, for her words and what she shared. Um, but I, I, I do still have to preach, I guess. That's expected of me, so I, I will. But, but I don't know if I need to. Uh, so what Mike just read uh, for us this morning is the Magnificat. Uh, it's known as such because its opening line reads, my soul magnifies the Lord, and, and magnify is in Latin, magnificat, and that's the very first word in the Latin translation of this passage of Scripture. And I think even if very few of us could actually recite it word for word, uh, there are very few passages that have held a more prominent place in the life of Christian worship than Mary's song of praise here. Now, it served as the inspiration for many works of art and music, and, and some of the greatest theological minds have just stood in awe at the power and beauty that Mary expresses here. And as we near the conclusion of the Elevate campaign, I, I don't know that there's a better passage for us to reflect on than this. And I say this not only because it literally talks about folks being lifted up, which is apt imagery, but also because the character of the God that Mary worships in this song is that of a God who I think delights in the project that we're undertaking here as a church. And more on that in a moment. But first, I think it's important to remember what we're doing and why we're doing what we're doing, to dig into the heart of what this Elevate campaign is all about. Because the easy summary would be to say that we're, what we're doing is raising money so that we can put an elevator in this building. And from a purely logistical standpoint, I suppose that's true. And, and yet, I think if we engage the Elevate campaign from such a pragmatic place will actually miss what it's really about. Uh, by way of analogy that I think is appropriate to the impending holiday season, uh, if one were to view the Elevate campaign as merely being about raising money to build an elevator, it would be akin to a very Grinch-like view of what we're doing. And if you're not a fan of me using Christmas analogies before Thanksgiving has even passed, I apologize. Uh, you just got to know that I've learned one of the things that helps me cope with the onset of winter in Minnesota is to treat it as the onset of the Christmas season because Christmas is literally the only thing that I consistently and unreservedly enjoy about winter, even if that means that I have to start celebrating in early November. 
And so in full transparency, Mariah Carey's Christmas album has already been receiving heavy airplay in my office, and I'm loving every minute of it. So sorry, not sorry. Uh, But back to the Grinch analogy. As you know, in Dr. Seuss's tale, the Grinch observes all of the shopping and gift giving that seems to be the primary behavior of the Christmas season, and he assumes that that is what Christmas is all about. And similarly, one could look at the pamphlets we've created, watch the videos that we've put out there, see a pledge card, hear that $750,000 figure, and assume that Elevate is, as I said a moment ago, all about raising money to build an elevator. But in thinking that way, one would be no closer to the heart of this campaign than the Grinch was to the heart of Christmas. I mean, Dave has reiterated time and time again over the past handful of weeks that this is about so much more. We are above all seeking to elevate the goodness of God in our individual lives, in the community of our church, in our surrounding community, and yes, in this physical church building. And Dave's also reminded us that Elevate's success will not be determined by whether or not we hit that $750,000 target, but by whether or not we together engage this process with hearts that are fully surrendered to how God wants us to participate in this work. And I hope we've let those reminders settle in because they're absolutely critical. But today, uh, in Mary's Magnificat, I think we get closest to the heart of why we are engaging in this particular project. And so for, for the Grinches among us, to mirror a phrase from Dr. Seuss. Hopefully today's message will help us see that maybe Elevate isn't just an elevator. Maybe Elevate perhaps means a little bit more. And that feels like the most dad joke thing I've ever incorporated into a sermon. I don't know what I've become. But uh, reflecting on this passage, N.T. Wright asked this. He said, why did Mary launch into a song like this in the first place? What has the news of her son got to do with God's strong power to overthrow the power structures of the world, demolishing the mighty and exalting the humble. Well, Mary and Elizabeth shared a dream. It was the ancient dream of Israel, the dream that one day all that the prophets had said would come true. One day Israel's God would do what he had said to Israel's earliest ancestors. All nations would be blessed through Abraham's family. But for that to happen, the powers that kept the world in slavery had to be toppled. Mary and Elizabeth, like so many Jews of their time, searched the scriptures, soaked themselves in psalms and prophetic writings which spoke of mercy, hope fulfillment, reversal, revolutions, victory over evil, and of God coming to the rescue at last. All of that is poured into this song like a rich, foaming drink that comes bubbling over the edge of the jug and spills out all around. See, Mary possessed, as most faithful Israelites in her day would have possessed, a certainty that the coming of God's promised Messiah would mean good news for the poor and the powerless and the oppressed and the marginalized. While we so often over-spiritualize sin to the point of abstraction in the church today, Mary recognized that God's confrontation of sin will have tangible, real-world consequences and that God's justice will mean good news for those who are currently on the underside of this world's systems of power and prestige. In the words of one commentator, what God has done for Mary 
anticipates and models what God will do for the poor, the powerless, and the oppressed of the world. In these verses, Luke expresses in sharpest focus what has been called a classical statement of God's activity. The lowly are raised, one might say elevated, and the lofty are brought low. And Mary's words in this passage carry a strong tone of certainty. So sure is she of the character of her God and the content of her promise. Notice she doesn't say, you know, one day God may lift up the humble and fill the hungry with good things. No, rather she declares that God has lifted up the humble and filled the hungry with good things, past tense. Now, in reality, none of those things had actually happened as of yet, but Mary recognized that if God was truly sending his long-promised Messiah, such a reversal of fortunes was a foregone conclusion. It was as good as done. And it's important to note also that Mary's celebration of God's justice and elevating the humble was not an aberration from the norm. Rather, just even a cursory walk through Scripture reveals that from beginning to end, perhaps the most consistent message regards God's care for those whom we in church circles frequently call the least of these. This common thread has come to be known as God's preferential option for the poor. In fact, Pope Francis remarked that without the preferential option for the poor, the proclamation of the gospel, which is itself the prime form of charity, risks being misunderstood. Which brings us back to how this passage, this song, the Magnificat, gets us to the very heart of the Elevate campaign. Scripture's preferential option for the poor reflects God's heart for justice. The fact that God will one day make things right, the promise of wholeness and fullness of life. We can be assured of this because of the victory won on the cross, but for that justice to be realized, those on the bottom must be lifted up. And God will do it, but he doesn't want to do it alone. God's people must do the work of justice alongside him. We're not called to just sit on the sidelines and marvel at what God has done. That's the starting point, to be sure. But God wants us involved too. We are invited to be collaborators in God's divine conspiracy, to, to borrow a phrase from the late great Dallas Willard. You see, our, our work of elevating justice is the work of manifesting what Christ has already accomplished on the cross. We don't pursue justice because, you know, if we don't, who will? Uh, we pursue justice because it is a way of living in alignment with who God is with how God acts, and with what God has promised will happen. Uh, Henry Nouwen observed that Christian action is not an anxious human effort to create a better world. Rather, it is a confident expression of the truth that in Christ, death, evil, and destruction have been overcome. Christian action is not a fearful attempt to restore a broken order. It is a joyful assertion that in Christ all order has already been restored. Christian action is not a nervous effort to bring divided people together, but a celebration of an already established unity. Thus, Christian action is not activism. An activist wants to heal, restore, redeem, and recreate. But those acting within the house of God point through their action to the healing, restoring, redeeming, and recreating presence of God. 
Because when God acts in human history, God turns this world downside up. Those on the bottom are raised up. They're elevated. This is good news. And, and I just personally want to tell you, I've been proud of the heart that I've seen displayed in this church at Resurrection Minneapolis. One of the things I often share with folks who ask me how things are going here for me at Res is that I've been blown away by the spirit of this church, a spirit that seems to default to saying yes to the opportunities that are put in front of it rather than shying away from them or coming up with excuses to say no. And maybe it hasn't always been that way, I don't know, but it has been for as long as I've been here. And we've already said one huge yes to God's work of justice by moving forward in our partnership with Ace in the City on the center of belonging. And I can't gloss over what a big deal that is. I mean, sitting right underneath us lies over 7,000 square feet of building space that for decades has gone largely unused. So much untapped potential, essentially wasted space. And I don't say that to shame us. I mean, that's hardly unique. Most churches sit with building space that goes unused for 95% of the week. I mean, church buildings represent, in my opinion, some of the most underutilized real estate in our world today. Now, I want to be careful to say that what happens in the 5% of the week that the building does get used, often on Sunday mornings in worship, that's vitally important, obviously. I mean, if our church buildings were used 100% of the time, but none of that was used to worship God or center ourselves on God's goodness, then none of the rest would matter. I mean, we are, after all, a worshiping community. That's a large part of what makes the church the church, without which we would have no distinct identity. But that's not everything. In fact, in the famous words of of Micah the prophet, while God desires our worship, the things most important in how we express that are that we act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with him. Notice that when when spelling out what God requires of his people, pursuing justice is the very first thing that rolls off the prophet's tongue. And so if we confine our worship of God to this one hour on Sunday where we sing songs and hear the word and celebrate the Lord's Supper, if we confine our worship to that, we'll miss the fact that a very significant component of our worship is our pursuit of justice. One of our chief responsibilities as God's people, as representatives of God's faithful presence in our world, is to act justly. And this building is one of the greatest resources that God has given us. And we risk the kind of judgment that Mary references in her song if we're going to keep it for ourselves. And many churches are making that kind of tragic choice. I know that firsthand, both from my observation of how many churches use, or more accurately, don't use, their buildings, and their space, but also from the fact that I know Ace received several no's from other churches before Rez said yes to the center of belonging. And by saying yes to the center of belonging, we are heeding God's call for justice. We're making the statement that it's not okay for our basement to sit empty. Our yes to the center of belonging deserves recognition, not in the patting ourselves on the back kind of way, but rather in the sense that we must recognize that this will shift the DNA of our church moving forward for the better, for the better. By saying yes to the center of belonging, we're saying yes to people struggling with addiction. Yes to single mothers. Yes to people looking for food to put on their table. Yes to folks who currently avoid medical or dental treatment because they fear that they can't afford it. Yes to kids and students who are desperately seeking a place to belong. 
Yes, in short, to those who have been humbled by society, to those who are waiting for God to turn things downside up. We are saying yes to seeing Mary's dream from Luke 1 become a reality in our little corner of South Minneapolis. We're saying yes to partnering with God in the work of seeing the lowly lifted up. We are saying yes to elevating justice. Uh, A question that I get asked frequently, uh, often by baristas actually, uh, is what does your tattoo say? Uh, And follow-up questions regularly include, are you Jewish? And are you planning on getting those letters filled in? Uh, And the tattoo itself is the word shalom. Uh, Most are familiar with that word shalom. It's the Hebrew word that we often in English translate as peace. And certainly peace is a part of shalom, but the biblical concept of shalom is so much richer. It's one of wholeness. It's, It's the end state where God is moving the story of history, a state where everything is as God desires it to be and created it to be. Shalom is, in my mind, one of the most beautiful concepts in all of Scripture. And God's shalom promises a very strong and certain future, which is why I had the word tattooed in a large font with thick black lines. The promise of shalom is solid. There is no doubt that God is at work in our world, moving things towards healing and wholeness. And yet, as we all realize, I think, we're not currently experiencing the fullness of God's shalom. Our lives and our world are still very broken. There's a lot of shalom that still needs to be fleshed out in our world, which is why I didn't have the tattoo artist fill in the letter. Shalom is not yet a completed reality in our midst. And you might ask why I chose this to be something that would be on my body permanently in such a visible place, because for me, going back to God's preferential option for the poor and God's command in Micah 6.8 and our identity as God's people in this world, We have been invited into the work of partnering with God to see his shalom fleshed out in this world. It's a large part of our Christian vocation. For whatever reason, God has chosen not to act unilaterally, but rather has invited humanity to partner with him in his redemptive work. And so when we say yes to Jesus, we're saying yes to partnering with God in the work of seeing shalom become a reality in our world. Yes, God defines the outline and the shape of shalom, but God invites us to help fill it in. Our lives have to be shaped by that invitation, and and this for me just serves as a daily reminder of that calling. Um, I suppose, though, despite everything that I've said thus far, one could still ask the question, you know, of all the ways we could choose to elevate God's name or elevate justice, why this? Why an elevator? Why accessibility? I mean, after all, someone could also say, you know, there are plenty of other churches out there that one could attend if accessibility was an obstacle here, which I suppose is true insofar as it goes. But again, a la the Grinch, that kind of thinking not only misses the heart of this project, but also the very heart of the God that we profess to worship every single Sunday. We must daily say yes to the invitations God puts before us. The center of belonging is one big example of such a yes. And the Elevate campaign represents another vitally important yes that we need to say as a church. Because even if we're turning our basement from a no to a yes, the mere fact that there are many people who cannot enter our building due to inaccessibility means that our building as it currently stands represents a no 
to God's justice in a very real and tangible sense. It simply is not right. The lack of accessibility, as Katie shared earlier, impacts the Sherman Strands every single time they come here. There are others who we know who have simply stopped coming due to accessibility concerns. Certainly there are those who have probably never considered attending our church because of that barrier. And, and as the center of belonging is built, there will be folks for whom a lack of accessibility would mean a lack of access to desperately needed resources. Now, we could still say no to this opportunity. Um, in fact, I, I believe in the past, for various reasons, the response has been a no to this invitation, but we can no longer plead ignorance. We're at a point where saying no would be a willful rejection of God's justice. Saying no would represent the antithesis of Mary's song of praise. Shirking back from engaging with the Elevate campaign would represent, on our collective part, choosing not to lift up the humble, literally, and would be sending not the rich away empty, but rather sending those with physical disabilities away empty. And one step even further than that, if, if we were to say no simply because we don't think we have the capacity to accomplish such a project, it'd be a slap in the face of the God that we profess to believe in, a God for whom nothing is too great. I mean, if we're going to shy away from opportunities to see God do something that we don't feel capable of accomplishing on our own, then what are we doing here, right? I'm serious with that. Is this just a game? What's the content of our faith if we never give it a meaningful opportunity for expression? Friends, this is a justice issue that we can no longer claim ignorance of, nor shy away from because we don't think we possess the capacity to do it. Uh, now, now, thankfully, all of what I've just said is, is rhetorical because we have already said a collective yes to engaging in the Elevate campaign process. We are not ignoring the invitation in front of us. What's yet to be determined is how each and every one of us individually will engage this process. And as we near the conclusion of this campaign, I pray that we would continue to display a faith in line with the character of Mary's faith. I mean, Mary had been told the impossible, that she, a virgin, would be pregnant. And yet, rather dismissing it as impossible or shrinking back from the task at hand, she said yes to God and to the opportunity presented to her. And she was so certain that God would accomplish what he had promised that she celebrated it in past tense. It was as good as done. Now, I'd be a bit remiss if I didn't let you in on a dirty little secret that comes with following Jesus in the work of justice. This won't be the last yes we need to say. Saying yes to partnering with God's work is never a one and done kind of thing. It's not like because we said yes to the center of belonging or, or say yes to the Elevate campaign that we can now check off the, the justice box on God's to-do list. No, saying yes to justice is a lifestyle, a recognition that until God's shalom is fully realized in our midst, that beautiful day when God will be all in all, as Paul puts it, until that day, our work of pursuing justice will always be in process. There will be more yeses we must say, many more. I have a hunch some of them will be coming sooner than we think. I mean, for example, folks might start coming to the center of belonging and not belong to a church community and be exposed to our church 
and come on a Sunday morning, but maybe not speak fluent English. And then we'll be faced with a decision. Do we look to create space for them to find a home here, or do we send them elsewhere? That's just an example. I don't know what other invitations God will put in front of us, but I do pray that we'll say yes when God gives us those invitations, just as we said yes to the center of belonging, and just like we're walking the yes path with the Elevate campaign. And so as I close, sisters and brothers, may we see clearly the God that Mary worshipped, a God who displays his justice by elevating the humble. And may we be embody the faith of Mary, sensing that as God calls us to this work in the life of our church, we have no reason to say no, because if God is truly at work in our midst, it is as good as done. Amen? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, please pray with me.